tonight we're going to check out the blessing of Moses, which is fascinating, Deuteronomy 33. That's, that's similar in many ways to the blessing of Jacob over his 12 sons. Well, now Moses is going to bless the 12 tribes, but that'll be, that'll be our midweek study. This morning, back to Deuteronomy 32, just one more time. We opened it up last week, told you some things that I'm going to repeat this morning because they bear repeating. And I want to hone in on one aspect of this song of Moses, this marvelous, remarkable song. I don't know how they sang it. In English, I can't find the, you know, the rhyme scheme or the, or the, the timbre for it. I, but in Hebrew, I, I imagine it was just stunning and memorable, which is the idea of the song. As we sing songs, we remember them. So the song of Moses again, and I just, I'm going to pick out a few verses here, so follow me through this. Verse 4, Deuteronomy 32, the rock, his work is perfect, all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Verse 15, but Jeshurun grew fat and kicked, you are grown fat, thick and sleek, and then he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. Down in verse 18. You neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Verse 30. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Father, bless this teaching and give us insight and understanding, but more than anything else, give us confidence in this. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. The Pacific Northwest has trees. Israel has rocks. It's a great distinction of the two regions. Now, there are many trees and forests in Israel. In fact, Israel is being marvelously reforested and has been now for, for decades. But if Jesus had been born in Bo-Edison instead of Bethlehem, he might have been laid in a trough of wood. As it was, the mangers of Israel were carved in stone. Now, many of you Bible students know that. If you were to visit Jesus at his birth there in the shepherd caves, more likely than barns, caves of, of Bethlehem on the outskirts of the city, you would have come upon an infant laid probably in hay or straw to soften it, wrapped in cloth, but in a stone manger because mangers were made of stone. We know this. Archaeology loves Israel, loves the land of Israel because stone remains. Stone remains. You dig it up, there it is, looking not unlike it looked 2,000 years ago. Psalm 85, 11, and I speak this almost every time we go to the land, truth springs from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. God does that. He reveals things through the very earth, things that have been buried, long forgotten, emerge once again and prove the point. Stone remains. That which is carved in stone emerges to tell stories thousands of years after it was first carved. Walls and columns and pillars and, and statues and ossuaries and, yes, mangers. Trees burn in fires or uprooted by heavy winds. 
cause our power outages. <laughs> They're uprooted by rains and, and hurricanes and, and tornadoes. And let, let's pause just for a moment with that in mind. And Father, we pray for the Midwest. We pray for Mayfield, Kentucky. We pray, Father, for the people who have lost homes and loved ones in these storms that have ravaged that region over this past week. We ask, Lord, that there would be comfort where no other comfort could be found. May it come from you. And may you heal that part of the land, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. But trees go down. Trees disappear. Stone remains. Stone remains. You may have seen the pictures of the carnage of the tornado and, and even a church building where the entire roof was just gone. I thought, what if that was us this morning? What if it was this building that had been hit? Where would we meet? How, what would we, how would we deal with life? Even church buildings blow away. Don't put your confidence in this place. Stone remains. Stone remains. And so Moses, throughout this song, calls God Sir. Not S-I-R, but S-U-R. Sur in the Hebrew, meaning a solid, massive rock face or, or a foundation. As we read last week, verse 4, the rock. The rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. The song of Moses is indeed a rock song. A song of the rock. But listen to these Hebrew witnesses that would concur with Moses' understanding. 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 2, Hannah called him sir. When she sang, there is no one holy like the Lord. Indeed, there is no one beside you, nor is there any rock, any sir like our God. 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is also repeated in Psalm 18, David called him sir. David said, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God and my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge and my savior. In verse 32, David said, for who is God besides the Lord and who is a rock besides our God? In verse 47 of 2 Samuel 22, the Lord lives and blessed be my rock. And exalted be God, the rock of my salvation. David wrote many rock songs. Throughout the Psalms, there are at least 12 Psalms where he refers to, where he praises, where he sings to God his rock. And even with his very last words, the final words of David, he said, 2 Samuel 23, verse 3, the rock of Israel spoke to me. The rock spoke to me. Isaiah calls him sir. Isaiah chapter 26, verse 4. Trust in the Lord forever, for in God the Lord we have an everlasting rock. Isaiah 44, verse 8. Through Isaiah, God says of himself, do not tremble, do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced to you and declared, and you are my witnesses, is there any God besides me? Is there any other rock and then I love when God says this. He says, I know of none. I mean, there's, there's witty sarcasm in that. Of course he knows of none. He's God. He knows all there is to know, and there's only one rock. God says, it's me. 
finally in Habakkuk, the Hebrew prophet, chapter 1, verse 12, he calls him, he's the final one to call him sir in the Hebrew scriptures. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my holy one? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge. You, O rock, have established them to correct. The rock. Now, if you were listening, you heard Habakkuk say, the rock established them to judge, established them to correct. Who's he talking about there? Mighty Babylon. Mighty Babylon, Habakkuk is saying, you called Babylon to do what they did. You called Babylon to come in and take captive the people of Judah. But even Babylon, God's disciplinary tool for the Jewish people at that time, even Babylon's gone, but the rock remains. The rock remains. Their rocks are false gods. Their rocks in the world are fabricated idols and fleeting custom deities. Their rocks are what we talked about Wednesday night, Johnny come lately. If you look down in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known, new gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. That is recently. Moses says, this is what's going on. He, he says, you're going into the land, and then he describes past tense as though it's already happened, that then the people in the land start to chase after all kinds of gods. But not old gods, not ancient gods, new ones that just came lately. New ones that are recently made up. And what we talked about midweek is that that's what cultures do. We create our, go our own gods in our own image. And that's why there are always new gods on the world scene, because we just keep making them up. But they come and they go as culture comes and it goes. Invented, pretended, unstable, inconsistent. They are no rocks at all. Flimsy to follow. They don't remain. All the false gods of all the religions of the world, well, Moses says, are just demons. And I want to underscore that. And I'm not saying this to be harsh or intolerant. But the truth is there is only one God, one rock, and all other faiths, all other gods, so-called, all other belief systems are beliefs in demons. It's demonic. Any other faith other than the following after Jehovah God through Jesus Christ. It's demonology, and it's what the Bible says. Demons have one purpose, one simple purpose in the world, to destroy, to despoil, and to ruin, but they cannot break the rock. They are nothing like the rock. In the New Testament, taking this theme further, the rock is identified, as the prophet suspected, as Messiah himself. Messiah is the rock. Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, you've heard it many times, hear it again, I say to you that you are pebble, Peter, Petrus. And upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. What Jesus spoke to Peter, and my Catholic friends need to understand this, no human being is a rock. Peter is not the rock. Peter's a little pebble, but the son of man, he is the rock. Our rock is Peter's confession. You're Peter, but on this rock, I will build my church. What rock? You are the Christ. 
You are the Christ. The Christ is our rock. And he is rock solid. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, all drank from the same spiritual drink, Paul said, of Israel moving through the wilderness, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. The rock. 1 Corinthians 3.11, Paul had already written, for no man can lay a foundation other than the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's our rock. He's the foundation on which we stand. And maybe that's all you need to hear today. Don't close your Bible yet. But maybe that's all you need to know, to be reminded that there is no rock, there is no strength, no stability, no security in this world, but Jesus. Amen. He is your rock. And when the storms blow, he is your rock. When you're devastated by disease, he is your rock. When you are assailed by the enemy, he is the rock. The rock is Christ. And it is not in your own self that you rely. You will let yourself down. It's not in others that we rely. Others will let us down. It's not in all the ideas of humanity. They will let us down. It's not in cultures or countries or nations. They will let us down. But the rock, the rock is Christ. And where all others will let us down, listen to this, Psalm 61, verse 1, we may say, hear my cry, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Everything else will let you down, but he is the rock who will lift you up. He is the rock that is higher than I, for you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings. Halfway through the psalm, then it says, Selah. Think about that. Selah, pause. Lift me to the rock which is higher than I. God, the rock. Talk about big sir. I actually looked that up because I'm like, wait a minute, sir is the Hebrew word and there's big sir in California. Big sir is, is from the Italian apparently. It, it means big south. <laughs> and we even here on Whidbey Island, Whidbey Island, if you're in the Navy, you know this is called the rock. Hey, this island will let you down. We have only one rock. But, but you know what's interesting about the rock? Some stumble on the rock. Others are offended by the rock. Both Paul and Peter quote from Isaiah 28, verse 16, on this point. Romans 9, verse 3, Paul says, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And yet, to some, he is stumbling, and to others, he's an offense. But if you trust in him, if you stand on him, if you believe in him, you're not going to be disappointed. You will be lifted up. He is the rock that is higher than I. Peter chimes in, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 7. This precious value then is for you who believe. But for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very corner and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this they were also appointed. The rock. Jesus 
takes that same concept from Isaiah and he identifies himself as that same rock, the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. But let's go back to the Song of Moses for a bit and think this through with me because in this Song of the Rock, this rock song, there are some very interesting explicit statements of God, references to or definitions for God. Remember, we've been talking about his character matters. You want to know him as he presents himself, not as we may think he is, but as he really is. And so there are some specific, explicit things that Moses writes about God, our rock, that can teach us of God. And there are some implicit references to the rock as well. Let's look first at the obvious ones. Again, verse 4, the rock. His work is perfect. All his ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. And the theme that rolls around in verse 4 is that the rock is solid. Absolutely solid. What, what he's talking about in these ideas of perfection and justice and faithfulness, without injustice, righteous and upright, there is a moral absolute here. He is the moral absolute. He is perfect in all of his ways, from his commandments to his precepts to his judgments, all perfect. Because he is perfect, he is rock solid. And I say that because if you know and you trust this about him, no matter what happens in our lives, the rock is solid. The rock is solid. And you can trust him. I was talking with Les and Donna last week. They, they made their way over to the church. They're doing much better. Home still decided to stay home and just rest a little more, which, which I encouraged. And by the way, good morning, Les and Donna. They're joining us in, in spirit. Uh, but talking with them last week and, and in their bout with COVID, and so many have been affected by this, many of you and, and many who are not here right now, and Donna made a comment. She said the thing about COVID that was so unexpected for her was the despair. And I, I'm using my own words to what she said, but it was something to the effect of she got to the point where she said, I couldn't feel it in my heart. I knew it. I knew it in my, in my head that God was going to see us through this, but I couldn't feel it in my heart. And she just kept crying out to the Lord over and over. Why would she do that? Because when you don't feel it in your heart, you cry out to the only thing you know, which is the rock. He is rock solid, and you may not feel it. You may not emotionally be able to get there. You may even spiritually, for a time, be darkened and unable to see. But the rock is there. The rock is solid. And no matter what happens in our lives, the rock is going to make it right. And we need to trust that because too often in our lives, and I'm talking primarily to Christians here, too often in our lives, we lose that trust. We're fearful that actually the rock could be overtaken, that the bad could just exist and go on forever, that my circumstances are out of his control. The rock is solid. You can trust him. It may be all we can do to cry, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. And if you pray that prayer and you don't feel any different, you pray it again. And if you pray it again and you don't feel any different, you pray it again. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. 
and you cry out to the rock because he is solid. What of those who reject the rock? And that's really the other side of this whole thing. If you look at the end of verse 15, speaking of Israel, he forsook God who made him and scorned the rock of his salvation. And then down in verse 18, you, Israel, you neglected the rock who begot you and forgot the God who gave you birth. Four words there in those two verses uh, of Israel's reaction and response to the rock, the solid rock of God. They forsook him, they scorned him, they neglected him, and they forgot him. Ever been there? Ever forsaken God in your life or behavior? Ever scorned him or neglected him or just forgotten him? Th those four words, think about these for a moment. Forsook is jitos, and it means they left him. This is the word you would use of a husband who's left his wife. Yitos. They left him. They broke faith with him. They, they disregarded the relationship. They scorned him is the second word. Yinabel, which means they treated him with contempt. They neglected him, tesi, which means put him out of mind. And then they forgot him, tiskat, which means to cease to care about. They left him, treated him with contempt, put him out of their minds, and ceased to care about him. It sounds like a jilted lover. I said that Wednesday night. I've said that a few times about this song, that God takes the position. God, the rock, the solid rock, takes the position in this song of the jilted lover. He's the one who's left. If you've ever been left, guess what? He was left long before you. And he's been left over and over and over throughout all history. Nobody knows what it's like to be left like God knows. He was left Long before Neil Sedaka thought breaking up was hard to do. <laughs> Long before Adele sang Go Easy on Me from her brand new upbeat album about her divorce. Long before Olivia Rodrigo used her driver's license to drive by the street of her ex-boyfriend's house. Now, I'm getting really current. I don't know if any of you have even heard that song. Uh, maybe next service they will have heard him. I don't know. Long before Taylor Swift made a career out of shading her exes, God was left. God was forsaken, scorned, neglected, forgotten, which tells us something, and I had to really think about this one, tells us something about God that though the rock is solid, we need to understand, number two, the rock is sensitive. The rock is sensitive, not weak, not pathetic or pitiful, but the rock is pained and passionate. That is, God is not without feeling in all this, my friends. God is not stolid. He grieves, even the loss of Israel, he grieves ahead of time. God aches, he sorrows. And he does over all who forsake, scorn, neglect, and forget him. The world that scorns him would say, if I walk away from God, he gets angry and casts down curses. No. 
If you walk away from God, it breaks his heart. Because the rock, the rock is sensitive. He was despised and forsaken of men, Isaiah 53, verse 3. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Put that together. What was it that caused Jesus to be a man of sorrows? He didn't have an issue with depression. It's that as he walked the planet, he saw face after face of those who would reject him. He had to live in the condition of a world that didn't even recognize him, of coming to his own, and his own did not receive him. And it broke his heart. And the point in telling you this is not feel bad for God. The point is God feels that the rock is sensitive more deeply than we can possibly comprehend. You think you have emotion, where'd you get it? You think you have feelings of pain and loss and heartache and grief, where'd you get that? We're created in his image. The rock is sensitive. The rock feels these pains and it's why, again, he speaks as a jilted lover in this song. His love is so great that his heart breaks over the one who rejects him. I remember being there as a teenager. Oh, brokenhearted. I'm so thankful I got brokenhearted over several different girls that that, that never remained. <laughs> but I remember that sense, you know, she breaks up. And your immediate reaction is not, well, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> no, your immediate reaction is, oh, my broken heart. That's God's reaction. You reject me? The rock is sensitive. When he approached Jerusalem, Luke chapter 19, verse 41 says, he saw the city and he wept over it saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they've been hidden from your eyes. It's amazing. Luke actually takes it a step further. The other gospel writers tell us that Jesus said, you know, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who stoned the prophets and kill those who are sent to you. How long I've longed to bring you under my wings as, as, a, as a hen. Jesus said these things, but Luke tells us, he said it in tears. He said it weeping. His heart breaks. But you know what has not happened, though his heart breaks? What Jesus has not done is give up. The rock is solid. The rock is sensitive. But in that sensitivity, when his heart breaks, he still does not give up. But understand this. It's not that he does not give up on or has not given up on Israel. It's that he hasn't given up on himself as Israel's Savior. It's not that God has not given up on you. Oh, God's still got hope for me. No, no, God's got hope in himself for you. God trusts himself in his ability to yet save you and me. His confidence, well, number three, the rock is self-assured. The rock is solid and, and sensitive, but he is self assured, self-confident, knows what he's going to do and knows his ability to even bring us around though we might scorn and neglect. I'm not talking about universal salvation, folks. People have to make a choice 
for Jesus. But Jesus knows he is their only hope. He has confidence in himself in this. And ultimately, it was Israel's scorn and neglect that caused him not to move into just throwing stones, but into disciplinary action. And such is his confidence. Look at verse 30. How could one chase a thousand and two put 10,000 to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had given them up? Indeed, their rock is not like our rock. Even our enemies themselves judge this. Now, this is difficult to translate. Anytime you have a couple of verses where there are a lot of theirs in them, and you're, well, whose there is he talking about where, you know? And it can be a, a bit confusing. And I'm actually going to reverse something that I said midweek. Since the value of going through the Bible is, is I, I get to go back and make corrections. Midweek, we're looking at this, and I, and I was trying to think it through and work it out, and I went back to it because it kept bothering me. How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? The there and the them are both Israel there. Now, if you wrote something different from Wednesday night, so did I. I had to scratch it out in my Bible and write in Israel next to it. What he's saying is unless Israel's rock had sold Israel and the Lord had given them up. In other words, the enemies could not have gotten anything on them unless the Lord allowed it. Unless the Lord handed Israel over, as it were. Unless there, Israel's rock had sold them Israel. And the Lord had given them, Israel, up. And then in verse 31, indeed, their rock, the enemy's rock, is not like our rock. Now speaking again of Israel's rock. Are you with me on that? That the only way Israel could be put to flight by their enemies in literally the thousands and in the tens of thousands or even think in the six millions, in the deportations, in the captivities, even in the death camps of history, the only way that could possibly have happened is if God, their rock, had given them up. But listen, that doesn't mean that he has given up. When God gives us up, it's not because he's given up. It's that he is moving into discipline mode, a disciplinary action. Psalm 89, verse 30, if his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my punishments, I'll wipe them out. No, that's not what it says. Psalm 89, 32 says, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes, but I will not break off my chesed my grace. I will not break off my grace from him nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate nor will I alter the utterance of my lips because the rock is self-assured. Because God knows what he's doing and his plan. He has not given up though he has often given people up to themselves which is what Paul described. See, this is what he's done with the world. Romans chapter 1, verse 24, God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. He gave them over so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. So he gave up? No, he gave over. He gave us up to our foolishness and to our impurity that, that, that we would experience the dishonor of that. 
Why? That we might turn. And then Romans chapter 1, verse 26, God gave them over to degrading passions. Degrading, think about downgrading. To passions that are downgraded from the way God created us. Did God give up? No, he gave over. He has not given up. And then finally, Paul says in Romans 1.28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. Why? Allowing us to experience depravity and degradation and dishonor. Allowing our sin to have its result in us and its impact on us. So that's it for us? No. Because again, giving over is not giving up with God. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12, for the, whom the Lord loves he reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom he delights. The Hebrew pastor quotes that exact thing, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. And Jesus said in Revelation 3, 19, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. The solid rock is sensitive, does feel these things, and yet he is self-assured. And that's the explicit, obvious picture that we get in the Song of Moses of the rock who is God. But there are some implicit suggestions in this song as well that I don't want us to miss. Go back to verse 13. He made him, that is, God made Israel, ride on the high places of the earth. And he ate the produce of the field, and he made him suck honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Honey from the rock and oil from the flinty rock. Now, the picture that is being painted there is of a beautiful land, of a land flowing with milk and honey. Of Psalm 81, verse 16, I would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock, I would satisfy you, the Lord says. I want you to have the best. I want to prepare a table for you, even in the presence of your enemies. I want you to feast and rejoice and be blessed. But the subtle implication here, while he made him suck honey from the rock, is this, again, picture of the honey of the land. It also tells us, number four in your notes, that the rock is sweet. The rock is sweet. Bible students, you know the answer to this. What does honey allude to in the Bible? It's the word. It is the Bible. It's kind of a trick question. What does honey allude to in the Bible? The Bible. Honey speaks of the word of God. Psalm 19, verse 10. These words of God, his judgments, his commandments, his law, they are more desirable than gold. Yes, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. You guys know this. I'm a honey guy. I'm not saying I'm a honey of a guy. That You got to judge that on your own. But I am a honey guy. I love honey. I love pure raw honey. I, I mean, you, you would be disgusted at how much I put in my tea in the morning. It's mostly honey, a little bit of tea, and a lot of half and half. That's my joy. That's the sweet elixir of life for me. But this word, this word, so when I hear this word is sweeter than honey, I, I'm drawn to it. Psalm 119, 103, how sweet are your words to my taste. Yes, sweeter than honey to my mouth. And yet, maybe you remember this. It's a bar, bizarre little instance. Happened twice, actually. Once to Ezekiel, once to John, where both prophets tasted the sweetness of the word. 
I mean, in literal fashion. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 8, let me tell you the story. You son of man, listen to what I'm speaking to you and do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. Open your mouth and eat what I am giving you. And then I looked and behold, a hand was extended to me and lo, a scroll was on it. Eat the scroll. <laughs> when he spread it out before me, it was written on the front and on the back. And written on it were lamentations and mourning and woe. And then he said to me, son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go speak to the house of Israel. Chapter 3, verse 2. So I opened my mouth and he fed me this scroll. He said to me, son of man, feed your stomach and fill your body with this scroll which I am giving you. And Ezekiel says, when I ate it, it was sweet as honey in my mouth. Mmm, oh, that's good. That's good stuff. He takes it in. This is the word of God he's taking in. And then he said to me, son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak my words to them. So the graphic is he's just taken in God's words and now he's about to go speak out God's words as he takes them in. They are sweet as honey in his mouth. And he says, for you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language, these whose words you cannot understand. But I have sent you to them who should listen to you. And so he goes. And down in verse 14 of Ezekiel chapter 3, tells us, the Spirit lifted me up and took me away. Now listen to this. And I went embittered in the rage of my spirit, and the hand of the Lord was strong on me. I came to the exiles who lived by the river Chabar at Tel Aviv, and I sat there seven days where they were living, causing consternation among them. This sweet word goes in. What happens to Ezekiel? Bitterness. He, he finds himself bitter. It's a sweet, honey-sweet word with a bitter warning. And John, the apostle, had the same experience. Revelation chapter 10, verse 8, he says, the voice which I heard from heaven, I heard again speaking with me saying, go take the scroll, which is open in the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and the land. And so I went to the angel telling him to give me the little book. Then he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter. Just let you know ahead of time. God's Ipecac but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. So I took the little book out of the angel's hand and I ate it, and in my mouth, oh, it was sweet as honey. And when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. John says, and they said to me, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. The sweet word goes in, but the bitterness causes you to have to vomit it back out. Consider that picture. The word is sweet. Oh, the word is sweet. But you know what? You can't get too far into Bible study before you begin to see the world as it is. Before you begin to feel some of that sensitive pain that God feels. Some of that bitter hurt that the Lord understands as he looks to a people who neglect and forsake and scorn and leave him. And you feel that with him. Honey from the rock is sweeter than anything I can take in. But I, I, I just warn you ahead of time, it will also cause you to experience the bitter sorrow of the rock himself. It's part of the deal. Well, I don't like the bitter idea. Nobody does. 
But the truth, the truth, when you live in a world of deception and lies, the truth opens your eyes to see it like you didn't see it before. We were down in Seattle on Thursday night, took the kids down to see a Christmas carol. We've gone down to the Act Theater to see a Christmas carol every year except last year for well over a decade. It's kind of been a family tradition. And then, and then the kids in classical conversations, we'd take a whole group of, of the school kids. We all would go down together, 30, 40, 50 kids, to watch a Christmas carol. The old Charles Dickens classic, wonderful. I just love the story. And, and, and it's just got that kind of old school sensibility to it. And you think even actors can't mess this one up. Yeah, they can. I won't go back. It was so bad this year, I won't go back. And I'm not saying it was poorly acted. I'm saying it was so altered. They didn't alter the words, but when Scrooge himself is played by a woman and when the ghost of Christmas past is played by a young gay man and the way he moved and danced about the stage, and by the way, in drag, it, it ruined the whole... I'm sitting there going, this is not what I want my kids to see. I almost walked out. Should have walked out. Should have said, kids, let's go. But I, I, I let them watch, and we got in the van, and we headed home afterwards, and I said, so I want your critique, and boy, they went off, and it was glorious. <laughs> because my kids saw the truth. That was the very first thing out of Naomi's mouth. Why was that guy in drag? <laughs> what was the point of that? They made artistic decisions to gender bend the characters they maintained the same script and everything, but it was ruined for me, and I just sat there. Normally, my eyes well up with tears when I watch that performance because it's so moving and so wonderful. This time, my heart was welling up with tears because it was so bitter for me. Why was it bitter, Rick? Because I have tasted the sweetness of the Word of God, and I can't sit here in a world and watch these things and just be like, ah, it's okay. It's no big deal. By the way, along with that, Seattle was dark. I mean, it was just dark. I haven't felt, and I, there's pure feelings here that I'm, that I'm expressing, pure spiritual reaction here. I haven't felt darkness in a city like that since I went to Las Vegas the last time. It was, it was just very, very strange. Um, there's fear. It is so encased in fear. The people, there were, nobody was on the streets. The the. the Stores that were normally bustling this time of year. When you're down there, you know that Seattle, the streets of Seattle all around the convention center, people are on the streets all, all times of day. No one's there. It's a ghost town. Uh, stores that normally are bright and lit up closed down. And, and as we walked from our car around and into the theater and then back around and having experienced what we did, I just, I'm like, I don't ever want to come here again. I want to find another city. I'm looking for a city with a better foundation. A foundation built on the rock. And while that was discouraging as we came home, I was more and more encouraged talking with the kids and with Cheryl and, and recognizing there was a lot of light in the van on the way home and a lot of joy there in knowing that my kids recognized what was going on. But you know what? The only way to deal with the bitterness that the sweet word causes, John and Ezekiel both had to do it, got to get the word out. You got to get the word. If you, if you as a Christian, listen to me, if you take in the word of God and you go to church and you just keep taking it in and taking it in and shutting out the world, you will simply find your heart heavy and bitter because all you're going to do is see the distinction. Remember that God has not given up hope on this dark, lost, fearful world. He still loves 
He still calls us to be the light. He still tells us, man, get the word out. Well, back to Deuteronomy 32. Again, not only did he make him suck honey from the rock because the word, that which comes from the rock is so sweet, but oil from the flinty rock. That's so cool. Oil from, from the flinty rock. Now, some of you are already jumping ahead to oil, but hold on a second. We're not talking about soft sandstone here. Even the description of, of rock here, it's not even a rock with cracks and fissures and crevices in it. This is a solid rock. This is a flinty rock. And the Hebrew word for flinty there describes that kind of solidity. But what do you do with flint? You strike it. You strike flint, and it sparks something, and the rock, number five in your notes, the rock was struck. The rock was struck. Oh, that, that rock that is solid and self-assured and sensitive, the rock was struck. Even as Yahweh told Moses back in Exodus 17, verse 6, you remember the old story, he said, strike the rock, and the water will flow. Moses struck the rock that first time, and the water flowed for the people. But here he says, oil from the flinty rock. On the surface, oil from the flinty rock simply describes a land that is so rich, olive trees grow right out of the stones, right out of the rocky ground. But this is a powerful, powerful inherent picture here, and I don't want you to miss it. Over in Zechariah, turn in your Bibles quickly, Zechariah Chapter 4, it's the last book of the Older Testament. So if you go to Matthew and then backpedal, you'll be right there. Zechariah chapter 4, verse 1. Zechariah 4, 1. Think of this, stay with it, oil from the flinty rock. The angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakening or is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? I said, Zechariah speaking, I see and behold a lampstand, all of gold with its bowl on top of it and its seven lamps. And along with it, I see seven spouts belonging to each one of the lamps which are on top of it. So think of that golden menorah in the temple, in the tabernacle, the seven lamps on its seven branches, oil lamps on top. And then he says, also I saw two olive trees beside it, one on the right side of the bowl and one on, the, on its other side. And I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? The angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. And he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. It's such an awesome picture. He's, uh, Zachariah's vision of the lampstand, and beside it, two olive trees and a huge golden bowl, and the olive trees are just feeding that pure olive oil into the bowl, feeding into the lamps, this nonstop feeding of the oil. Oil in the Bible is obviously a picture of the Holy Spirit. When kings, when prophets were anointed, it was with the anointing of God, a picture in that oil of the Spirit coming on the person, even as David was anointed by Samuel, by that pure, fresh olive oil, like the Spirit. And it says that the Spirit came upon him. So the oil of the Holy Spirit pouring out, even the language 
that Joel uses, that, that Peter later quotes in Acts chapter 2, verse 16. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel, day of Pentecost, remember? It shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth, pour forth of my spirit on all mankind as oil is poured. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. I'm going to pour out my spirit as oil is poured out. Now, now keep the thoughts of the lampstand, the oil coming into the lampstand, the oil of the spirit poured out like oil from, from the flinty rock. But Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, John says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe, reaching to the feet, girded across his, his chest with a golden sash. And then he goes on and describes that amazing revelation of Jesus and the picture is so profound. I started out this morning saying, hey, be encouraged because there's faith in houses like this all over the world right now. The church, the church. And you get these lampstands and you have Jesus right in the middle in John's vision. Jesus in the middle of the churches. How do you know? Because Jesus says, Revelation 1.20, as for the mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the oil of the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out. The church, Jesus said, I will build my church, and the oil will fill my church. Do you see the picture? Put this together. The lampstands are the churches. The oil of the rock pours into and throughout the church. Because Jesus, after he was struck made this promise. He said, after I'm struck, he said, help would come. John 16, 7, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so the Holy Spirit poured out, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. But there's one little key here. Don't miss this. Oil oil from the flinty rock. Because when the flinty rock is struck, not only does oil pour out, but sparks begin to fly. And this is something we need to understand that fiery passion is indeed a sign of the people of the rock. Not cold, stolid boredom, but passion and living and believing what we, what we state, what we declare, faith in the rock. Now, it's not the only sign that we bear the oil of his spirit, but my question to you this morning is, should we not burn brightly, more brightly than any people on the earth? Shouldn't we be the most encouraged? Shouldn't we be the most positive, the most hopeful? Shouldn't we be the most smiley of anybody? Because we are ignited by the oil of the flinty rock, the oil of the Holy Spirit. He is solid, he's sensitive, he is the self-assured rock. His word implicitly is as sweet as honey. And he was struck that the oil of his spirit might flow in us and ignite our faith and our following. And the rock remains. The rock remains. You see... For all of this, I'm going I'm to say something ridiculously simple here. I was going to say profoundly simple. It works that way too. 
This is profound in its simplicity. It's absolutely obvious. But understand where I'm going with this. Number six, if you've been keeping track, the rock, which is solid, sensitive, self-assured, sweet as honey, and struck. The rock, number six, is the stone. Say that to someone at work tomorrow. They'll go, figured that one out on your own, did you? <laughs> the rock is the stone. Matthew 21, verse 42. We'll end there. Go to Matthew 21, 42. Matthew 21, 42. Jesus, Jesus is still self-assured, still holding out hope, still even before the cross calling out to Israel, giving them every last chance to come back to God in faith prior to the cross. He knew they wouldn't, but Jesus never gives up on himself. And so still calling out to Israel, trying to get their attention. And he says, Matthew 21, verse 42, did you never read in the scriptures? And now Jesus quotes Isaiah 28. Actually, Psalm, sorry, Psalm 118, 22, he says, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief corner. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. You know that psalm, boys? And of course they did. This was song, sung all the time at the temple, Psalm 118. In fact, we believe it was the closing song of Passover. That when Jesus and the apostles, when they finished Passover, it says they sang a hymn and they went across the Mount of Olives. It was probably Psalm 118 that they sang. It was a traditional song to sing at that time and Jesus now repeats it. Did you never read this? Of course they had. And then Jesus says, therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Israel stumbled on the stone. Israel stumbled, stumbled and fell over the stone, and my friends, was broken to pieces. It's exactly what happened in history. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.22, Indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. But the Jews stumbled over the stone, looking for signs, Israel missing everyone as Jesus stood right before them. Israel was broken into pieces. And according to the revelation, there is more brokenness ahead for the Jewish nation. There is more brokenness for Israel. But listen to me, God can put broken pieces back together again. And that's the marvelous end of the story of God's work with Israel, of his self-assurance. The rock knows he is going to put this people together. There will be finally the believing remnant of Israel, all Israel, the end of the tribulation that will be saved. God's going to put them back together again, though they are broken, stumbling over the rock even today. What about those on whom the stones 
or the stone falls. On whomever it falls, the stone, the rock, who we've been talking about, it will scatter him like dust. And without question, Jesus now refers to all the nations of the world that reject the Christ. The Christ rejecting nations. Quickly, I got to take you back. Think about this. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. His dream was the template for this prophecy, for this word. He had a dream of this statue, golden head, silver arms and chest, bronze belly, iron legs, and then feet of a mixture of iron and clay. So definitely weak down there in the feet. And he sees this glorious statue. And, and I'm, I'm convinced, the Bible didn't tell us this, but I'm convinced that the face looked just like Nebuchadnezzar. Because we discover later as Daniel comes in and interprets the dream and then gives its meaning, he says, yeah, no, the golden head, that's Babylon. He doesn't name it, but he describes it. And then he says that the silver arms and chest, that's the next nation that follows the Medes and the Persians, which is why it's two arms. Medes and the Persians who would conquer Babylon. The bronze belly Greece comes in and conquers the Medes and the Persians. The iron legs, Rome, two legs. Well, Rome ended up dividing east and west. Rome was the iron kingdom. Rome comes along and, and, then, and then feet of mixed iron and clay and and later on, Daniel prophesies with ten toes. And each one of the toes describing ten nations in this strange ten-nation coalition that we've never seen. That is an end-of-times coalition. But it's weak. It's clay. It's iron mixed together. But that's not the significant thing in the dream. See, Nebuchadnezzar sees that, but then the terror happens. The dream becomes a nightmare as he sees this, this stone, not cut with human hands, the stone out of a mountain, and it smashes into the statue, and it crushes it, the Bible says, like chaff on the summer threshing floor. You might say, scatters it to dust. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 says, in the days of those kings, that is of that final coalition, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future, in the Akarith, that is in the last days. So the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. My friends, the rock, the rock will crush the nations that reject him. Amen. Scattering them like dust. The rock is the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And for all this, he offers us three options, three options. It comes down to as simple as this, the rock whose ways are perfect, the rock of the song of Moses, three options. Number one, stumble over him and end up broken to pieces. Or reject him fully and be scattered like dust or stand on the rock. Stand on the rock, stand on the rock. Trust him that he is solid. Believe in him, the rock. His work is perfect, his ways are just. A God of faithfulness 
and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Christ alone is your strength, your stability, your security, Jesus alone. There is no other rock. None other will remain. Only the rock remains. Jesus is not our backup plan. In case everything goes wrong, well, maybe we'll check him out. Jesus is the only way to stand in this world and in this darkness. So brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I just ask you again this morning, will you stand on the rock of Christ? Stand trusting in him. And for anyone non-believing or non-committal or ignoring or refusing God, this is your invitation. I think about this week to week, you know, with, with the number of us who are believers here. And unfortunately at this point, I don't know if it's this point in history or just where we're at in the country or what, but at this point it's, it's a rarity to have non-believers at church. But this is not a tradition or a weekly game that, that I play. I ask anyone here who is on the fence or non-believing to consider honestly, what will you do with the rock? Let's stand together. People of faith in Jesus, be encouraged. The rock remains. He's still here. He is still at work. He still has some things, and I can't comprehend this. I really thought he should have come back in 2007 or 2008. That would have worked for me. <laughs> I don't understand why, but Jesus still has some things he's doing. He said, my father's at work right now, and I myself am at work. So right now, he's still doing something. That's why we're here. So hold on. Stand on the rock. Have the confidence of the rock. If your stomach's a little bitter, get the words out. Take in his sweetness. But trust him and be confident because he's got this. And again, non-believer, if you would receive Jesus this morning, he will save your life for all eternity. Father, we pray together and we ask for this. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone present here this morning, anyone listening in from at home, and I ask, Father, for someone who, who may tune in at a later date, I just ask that, that you will convict the heart right now to pray this prayer, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner and I need you. I have no security in this world. I realize there is only you. So I believe in your resurrection. And I take you this morning, receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Oh, Jesus, save my heart and my life. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.